But I believe the only way to shun the ghost, the university past, is to stop focusing on the what's and the how's. That's where the ghost lives. That's where it thrives. You're playing on its home field. Your only chance to really shun that ghost is to move the conversation to the why. Why do you exist? Because you want your why to drive the what's and the how's and not the ghost. So I, if you start your planning with the why, you just, you have a better chance of combating the ghost. At least that's my belief. and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You. Today's guest had an opportunity that most of us can only dream of. After an impressive academic career as a faculty member and senior academic affairs leader, Stephen was hired as the inaugural chancellor for the University of Minnesota at Rochester, a brand new institution. He is also the author of a recently released new book entitled Campus with Purpose, a book that draws from his experience in starting this new campus and offers a great deal of wisdom for all higher ed leaders, including those who are leading institutions with deep and enduring histories and traditions. So it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Stephen Lemkul to the Ingenious U community. Well, thank you for the invitation. Uh, as we mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm really humbled by this invitation because you really have invited some of the great thinkers about innovation in higher education. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And we are very much looking forward to this conversation and to learning more about your experience and the book that I have read as have some of my students, and it is a terrific read. So let's, let's dig right in. In 2007, you were provided with a unique opportunity that does not come along very often, the chance to start a university from scratch. Can you tell us how this came about and what was the idea that initially drove the founding of this new institution? Well, clearly it was just serendipitous. I didn't go out looking for a job to start a university from scratch. Uh, it just happened to be an opportunity that revealed itself. I, I, the founding of the university, um, what really drove the launching of that campus was um, a 20 year persistent and, and really relentless effort by a group of citizens uh, in the city of Rochester, Minnesota uh, who felt strongly that the city, that the state's third largest city deserved a four-year campus. And uh, so the founding of that campus really must be attributed to their effort. Um, they simply wanted and thought they deserved uh, a public four-year campus in their community. So that's, that's how it started. Well, and as you tell it, the University of Minnesota at Rochester is not the typical college presidency that many aspire to. Indeed, uh, this was to be a new public university located in a shopping mall in a mm -hmm. part of the country where student enrollments and state funding were projected to decline, 
where the school had 400 students, but little sense about future enrollment projections, uh, the academic program mix or recurrent funding sources. I think I got all those pieces straight, I hope. So, yeah. so how did that picture fit with your professional journey, which you had begun as a university professor and in accepting the offer, to become the inaugural chancellor, you made quite a pivot in your own life and journey. So why did you do this? What drew you to the role? Well, you know, what she stated was, was absolutely correct. Um, uh, in fact, uh, the, the title of my inaugural address was, I really had something else in mind. Um, um, you know, I always, throughout my career, I always wanted to be in a position where I could have an impact and hopefully a positive impact, whether it was in the classroom, whether it was in a research lab or administrative office. And certainly being a leader of a brand new campus, um, I would be in a position to have an impact. But when I reflect back about what was that moment where I decided I would be interested in leading a campus located in a shopping mall. And to, when I reflect back on it, it was really that plane ride back from the interview to Missouri, where I currently uh, was serving. Uh, you know, when I first got on that plane, I, I again thought to myself, I really had something else in mind. But as I reflected more about my leadership position currently, I was spending all my time managing change. And I was in the search process and it occurred to me if I ended up being a leader at another established institution, I was gonna to continue to manage change. But man, if I became the leader of a brand new campus, you know, I wouldn't have to manage change anymore. I really could create change. I wouldn't have to undo stuff, at least I thought. So it was, it was that moment where I decided I really was interested in becoming a chancellor and leading a campus that uh, was located in a shopping mall. Now, I have read somewhere that you almost did not take the job. Is that, is that true? Well, yeah, you know, as you said, there's not, um, you know, a campus located in a shopping mall wasn't, you know, real attractive. Um, the other thing during the interview that concerned me is that the community really had high expectations for this new campus. They wanted to create these nationally ranked programs in areas like nanotechnology and uh, informatics, and they wanted uh, uh, graduate and professional programs in the health sciences. But it was clear that the funding stream for that campus was not going to be able to support those kinds of programs, any of them alone. And then, as you mentioned, you know, just being in the Midwest, um, there's going to be some challenges because enrollments and state funding are both projected to decline. So there was a lot of reasons to be cautious about the position. But the other one that really made me hesitant is when I, I recall these interviews for the position, and um, I was meeting with groups of deans and central administrators from the system office. And, I, and when I think back on those interviews, I, they really were more like interrogations. They weren't interviews because what was embedded in their comments was, why are you taking our money? <laughs> and, you know, and I understood their frustration. Um, they were dealing with significant budget cuts. 
Here, the university is starting a whole new university with another financial commitment. And this just didn't make their life any easier. So um, I, I, I remember leaving those interviews thinking, you know, I really do have something else in mind. And, and, and considered withdrawing at that point because I, just not wasting their time and my time. But then I had an interview with the president of the university and that conversation kept me at the table. And uh, the president, knew that the institutional mass action and inertia of large established universities was going to impede transformation in higher education. And he believed that in creating a small new campus may have the nimbleness, the maneuverability to try new stuff that, that we could share with others and may, and in the end, transform higher education. So he was looking for a leader who could really fully leverage that opportunity to start a campus from scratch and create some new models from higher education. That conversation kept me at the table uh, and it really resonated with me at the core. So um, if, if I didn't have that one, you're exactly right. I probably would have just said thank you and got back on the plane and went back to Missouri. Mm, boy, that's fascinating. And it, it you know, causes one to think if you ever do these interviews, you never want to uh, underestimate <laughs> the, <laughs> the power that you can have, the influence you can have on a potential candidate, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Now, how might you describe UMR? I'm going to refer to the University of Minnesota at Rochester as UMR, to okay. someone who is not familiar with the campus. What, what is the mission and how is it unique? From other colleges and universities? So UMR is an undergraduate health science campus with a re research focus on student learning and development, right? So it's, it's calling, or you could say its vision is to develop human potential to solve the grand health, cha health challenges of the 21st century. So that's what I mean by that. Its purpose is not to conduct research on cures nor teach the practice of healthcare. Rather, its purpose is to research and implement those research-driven practices to develop human potential that is essential, that we think will be essential to address the health challenges in the 21st century. So they're really, based on that, there are really two features that I think make UMR unique. One is, is that it's it it's, has an undergraduate focus on healthcare education. And then the second feature is really its research on student learning and development. So when you have a focus, an undergraduate focus on healthcare education, you can build everything around that. So you're attracting students who have an interest in pursuing a career, a health-related career. That could be patient-based or non-patient-based. You can then build a curriculum where it's interdisciplinary, integrated, but connected with health topics. And then you can use that student's interest in um, health to really deepen their learning then. You make it relevant so that they can um, deepen their understanding of the sciences, mathematics, humanities, and really more importantly, really deepen their engagement in those things that I call foundation skills. I know other people call them soft skills. I just don't like that term because as an um, educator, you know that the 
soft skills is the hardest thing to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's that, that critical thinking, the communication, the teamwork, the toleration of ambiguity, um, uh, intercultural competency skills, all those things that are really going to be critical in developing the human potential to solve healthcare problems. And then the second really unique feature of the institution was we were committed as an institution to research student learning and development. And that means the entire institution, not one department, not a center, not an individual researcher, but all faculty and staff. In fact, the tenure decisions that, um, were based on the research that the faculty did on student learning and development, whether they be chemists, sociologists, philosophers, um, and so on. The faculty were charged to, to research both learning and development and the overall achievement of those learning outcomes of the curriculum. Now, if I can, I just want to talk a little bit how that those unique features emerged um, uh, and what I call really the campus purpose because it was an interesting journey. Um, uh, Early on when I was there, I would ask questions of the general just out in the community, ask questions about um, um, why does this campus exist? (laughs) And what I learned is, is first, many had a struggled with that question. They could answer what we should be doing and how we should be doing it, but they really couldn't answer why we should be doing stuff. What, why do we exist? I found that interesting. And then the second thing that I learned is that the community in general have these very expansive expectations of higher education. And I just came to the conclusion that it's, it's we in higher education have really created this perception that we can be all things to all people. And so that, um, um, that was sort of a challenge. I, I, I knew that we couldn't be who we needed to be given our funding stream and trying to be all things to all people. So what I did then is I, I tried to unpack a lot of those conversations. And what I heard embedded in their comments were these things. One, the campus must be distinctive and special, not like anybody else, all right? I I sort of heard that as a theme. And second, it must be world-class. I mean, they use the term world-class. And I come to understand that they looked at their new campus as another major institution in the community and their other major institutions was the Mayo Clinic and IBM. They're a world-class organization. So they had the same. And then the third was that they wanted the institution to be value added. They didn't want it to be redundant. They wanted it to add value. But then I had to ask myself, add value to whom? And so I went, I resorted to the namesake of the university And I decided that we needed to add value to the city of Rochester. And what the city of Rochester need is it had this voracious appetite for a healthcare workforce. So that's why we were focused on healthcare. And then how do you add value to the University of Minnesota where the campus in the Twin Cities is one of the largest campuses in the nation have probably more degree programs, very many degree programs, very comprehensive. But I decided that 
an institutional commitment to research student learning and development would be a way that we could add value to the University of Minnesota. So this being distinctive, aspiring to be world-class and, and adding value. And then the other thing, which one of your earlier presenters had talked about, which is really key, um, and I, I did read the book during this time, Blue Ocean Strategy. It's really important that you think broadly about where can you be distinctive and special? And um, so in the end, those things really guided that, that uniqueness of the campus of being an undergraduate health campus and, and focused on doing research and student learning and development. Boy, thank you for unpacking that. That's a really helpful way to understand your thought process, but there's a lot there that is of value to to others, whether right. they're starting brand new with the campus or they've inherited a right. campus, right? So right. now in your book, you tell the story of the uh, UMR development. And one of the things I found really interesting is your description of coming to terms with what you call the ghost of university past. What, yeah. can, you, can you tell us all what you mean by that? And if you have an example that you can share. Sure, sure. Um, you know, remember, I was attracted to come to the campus because I wouldn't have to undo stuff. I could just create change. Well, it didn't quite turn out that way. When I use the term ghost university past, I'm just sort of referring to this, this accumulation and collection of legacy administrative systems and processes and policies and prevailing habits and uh, inherited mindsets, just culture and, and traditions. You know, it, it's, it's really an automatic way we think about everything in higher education. Um, and to me, it's just, it's really subconscious in many of us that grew up um, in higher education. It's just the way we reflexively think about things. Uh, and for me, um, and for many of us at, and in Rochester, it was really easier for us to free ourselves from kind of that automatic thinking because we weren't embedded in, we were out sort of by ourselves and we weren't surrounded by other administrators and other faculty. So we just, we actually were just could, we could be a little more open and think more broadly. Um, what I was concerned about at the early days of UMR was that, that sort of hidden and subliminal influence of the ghost of the university past, and I'm just collection of stuff, um, would push the new campus to be like everybody else, would make it to be a commodity, or I often use the term a franchise, and it would divert it from its purpose and its unique purpose, and that is to be distinctive, world-class, and value-added. So, it's not that I'm saying that all things that we do in higher education in terms of policy and processes is wrong. I just wanted to be open to the best ways to execute that purpose. And some may be the old ways and some may be the new ways. So if you ask for examples, um, uh, I'll, I'll just list some real quick. Um, you know, we, we decided to focus not on our not on my course, but on our curriculum. When we just focus on the course and we build everything around courses, we started by thinking about the curriculum. And it's just mm -hmm. that we didn't we didn't establish many majors. 
fact, we only had two. And then we used what I call a, a really a signature capstone uh, approach to sort of allow students to customize what they're doing, uh, to diversify, to customize their learning experience in later years. Um, I, I, we built what I call a tree curriculum, where the first two years is really very prescriptive. It actually is a cohort program where you can really build the connections between the different courses and really focus on those foundational skills. And then the last two years are really the branches of the tree where they can diversify and customize and have more flexibility. You know, our automatic way of thinking about that is you have this collection of general education courses. Everybody can take everything that they, you know, you've got all this selection. And then in the last two years and getting your major, things are much more prescriptive. Um, we didn't create academic departments. I really wanted to build an academic structure that promoted collaboration so I could deliver the interdisciplinary curriculum. And that was connected by health topics. And, and I needed the faculty to work together on, to research student learning. So we housed all the faculty in one academic unit, the Center for Learning Innovation. And uh, it was a socio-cultural experience for faculty, for biologists and philosophers and um, chemists and so on, sit around the same table. But it, there was some real richness in those conversations. Um, we didn't own or operate our own buildings. Um, universities are supposed to own buildings. That's, you know, I've heard some, you're not a real university because you don't own buildings. Well, I wanted to be focused on the learning business and not the real estate business. So we let others design, construct, and, and maintain that campus space. Uh, another one just comes top of my hand. We didn't have a library. Oh my gosh, you're a university without a library. Well, what people mean by libraries is your collection of books. Well, we didn't have a collection of books. Um, we partnered with the University of Minnesota and Twin Cities that has one of the best libraries in the nation. And we used interlibrary loan if the books were just uh, in print, uh, but we focused instead on, on library support for the students. So there wasn't, I mean, we do tours, but it says, well, where's your collection of books? Well, no, we, it's more important that we talk about and, and support students on information um, gathering and assessment. Um, in fact, I called our librarian, I don't know if she liked this, the information concierge, because I always thought library sort of meant that you manage books. Um, you know, another one real quick is, um, and I had to fight this. I, no, we aren't going to do intercollegiate sports. It's just not consistent with that purpose. But a lot of people just, you know, particularly community, just assume that's what the ghost is. This has this, well, what, what sports teams are you going to launch? And we didn't have that. So that gives you an example of what I mean by the ghost. You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind with Baypath University our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, ABD Degree Completion Program, makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started.
Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. In the book's introduction, you write about your initial sense that the decision to launch a new campus in Minnesota was driven more by politics than by programmatic need. How did you arrive at that conclusion? Well, um, first, uh, I I knew that the announcement of the new campus was, was given by the governor and not by the president of the university. And if you just sort of understand the political dynamics in the state at that time, it made sense why the governor, and he was working with a group of people who had worked for 20 years to try to get a campus there. But the the most, what convinced me the most that it was driven more by politics than by a programmatic justification is the most common argument that I heard for starting a campus from scratch is that the city of Rochester deserved one. Uh, I was never really heard of programmatic justification. Now, when I started asked about programmatic uh, reasons for starting a campus, boy, did I uncork all kinds of ideas. You know, there, are, there were people who thought there should be a primarily an undergraduate institution. There were others who thought it should be just graduate and professional. There were still others who thought it should be just focused on adults. Others thought it should just be an online university. Um, Others thought it should be research intensive and just uh, really focus on new business startups. So you really had a wide range. I mean, so from a programmatic perspective, they were, everybody had their own ideas, but that didn't create the justification for the university. For me, given that was a plus because the programmatic future wasn't ordained or preordained before I got there. I really had a menu that I could pick from. Which is a gift, was a gift it, to you, It was right? a gift, right. Yeah, boy, and again, what an opportunity. So uh, now in, in chapter three, you write about uh, the two forms of institutional energy that leaders have to manage. Uh, there's mental energy and then there's the physical resources. From my experience, little to no attention is generally given to how uh, to manage institutional mental energy. It's just not often talked about when we're talking about leadership. 
Um, can you talk about what this is and why you thought it was and why you think it's so important to adaptive leadership that you focused on it in one of the chapters? So when I talk about institutional meta-energy, I'm just really referring to the stuff or the things that occupy the faculty staff's attention. What, uh, what, what they worry about, what they talk about when they get together for a cup of coffee. Um, how do they prioritize their work? And that, that energy, right, um, it, it's limited. Uh, You've, you've got to manage it and, and you've got to direct it and invest it in high yield activities in, my, in our case, so that you can achieve your campus purpose. And you can waste it just like you can waste physical or fiscal resources. If you've got people doing the wrong stuff, the low yield activities, then you're, you're not managing correctly your mental energy. So you may ask an example. I'll give you an example from something that I encountered when, um, before I became an administrator. Um, I was chair of a faculty senate at the uh, University of Missouri, St. Louis. I did that for two years. And one of the things that I noticed was that we always would form committees to address all kinds of topics. And often they were just, they were administrative matters. I don't want to say they're not important or not, but I will say that we invested, you know, a lot of, you know, mental energy that the innovative acumen, the, I mean, faculty are really smart and you just, you need their energy and all their mental prowess to be focused on the right stuff. And sometimes they just, they're not, you're not investing it in the right stuff. I'm not, a, I'm not criticizing sure governance. In fact, I think it as a structure just garners this enormous amount of uh, mental energy and mental power that just needs to be directed at the right thing. I mean, at some point we just have to ask ourselves, are we talking about the right and important stuff? Now you mentioned adaptive leadership. Um, you know, and I've, I've heard this so many times, you know, on the podcast and from colleagues, you know, a leader cannot address all the issues and challenges and changes that faces higher education today. Um, so I'm a big believer that you've got to establish what I call an interactive network of, of faculty, staff, students, administrators, community stakeholders. And you gotta build that network around that campus purpose, or you could say a value proposition. And, and as a leader, you've got to build a capacity within your organization to lead within that network, to continue to expand and build it around that value proposition. And then if you understand networks, they have properties that you really can leverage. So, um, you know, you can leverage the power of a network through it's what I call, it's, plastic, it's a property called plasticity, which means that the connections um, grow and become stronger the more interactive it is. So you've got to engage people. Secondly, the power really is related to the density. The bigger those networks are, the more fuller they are, the more powerful they are. And then the third property of networks is the one that I think is most important. It's called hysteresis. 
And what hysteresis means is that networks can adapt to uh, and provide stability in chaotic environments. I mean, that's what's really good about networks. But networks also learn. And where they learn is when there's this nexus between something, connections that were built from past experiences and something new. And so that's where the learning goes that reshapes the network. And I really think that's that property allows an organization to be adaptive and to change. So it's, 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 I know we can use different words to describe it, but I like the word network. So you leverage the power of the networks and you build it around a common value proposition. I think that is key to building an adaptive organization. Well, that's a great segue to my next question, which is what does it actually mean to lead by purpose in higher education? And so you've begun to um, talk about uh, what you did. And, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about what specifically you did as the leader of this new institution to embed campus purpose? Well, I, as I said in the book, my reason for writing the book was not to promote the UMR model. I'm a big fan of obviously of the UMR model, but the reason for writing the book is to explain why we did what we did. And in doing that, I'm trying, I'm, I'm sharing with my colleagues that there's great value in leading by purpose. Now, often people dismiss what we did at UMR because we were small and simple and new, and that won't apply to a larger organization. Uh, and a more complex, I remember hearing the term often more complex organization. Well, when you get underneath what, what larger campuses are more complex because they're managing multiple purposes. Now, so if you think about a, a larger campus, they're uh, focused on undergraduate education, graduate education, professional. Some of them, uh, they have continuing education, they have research, some have hospitals, some have intercollegiate sports, which is the purpose of sports entertainment. So the, the challenge is, is how do you manage when you have multiple purposes? And what I'm trying to argue in the book is there's still value by leading by purpose, even when you have more than one purpose. Um, what I have found is when you look at larger campuses with multiple purposes, um, they're not organized around purpose. Um, and, and, and they budget not around purpose. They're, they're, and, and when you start to look at it, they really budget and organize themselves around academic discipline. So if you, um, take the organizational map and take the organizational structure and map purpose against the organizational structure. What you'll find is that, you know, undergraduate education, graduate education, continuing education and research and scholarship is really under the purview of the different colleges and, and of the deans, right? And then what happens is, is then we, Put funds, we allocate funds to those colleges and to the deans. And now the deans are free to invest that according to the college's priorities. So not surprisingly, 
different colleges have different priorities for undergraduate education versus graduate education versus research versus their continuing education. So what happens is, is that you're really not leading by purpose, you're leading by discipline. And I just, I just think there's value if you thought about just focus on the research part or focus on the king education part and so on. Um, the other thing that I've noticed is in the budgeting process, um, universities love fungible funds. <laughs> I mean, they, they need it. And the reason they need fungible funds is they cross subsidize um, across the organization. And what that simply means is they subsidize different units and different departments with revenue generated by other units, all right? And that's fine. But when they do that, hopefully it's strategic because they're establishing priorities on different campus purposes. And, you know, so sometimes the questions, I think the question should undergraduate tuition revenue, which is the largest fungible university resource, be used to support graduate education or research or intercollegiate athletics, which it often does. I'm not being critical of that, but are you are you knowingly making those are those uh, those investments? Are you intentional about it, or are you really doing this because of a budgetary necessity uh, to keep some units afloat, or is it just a matter of habit? Right. My argument in the book is if you lead by purpose that changes the conversation. It's less about cross-subsidizing, it's less about budget cutting, it's more about making investments in purpose. So um, if, you, if leaders establish institutions just had this mindset of leading by purpose, I think you would just think differently about some of your organizational structures and some of your budgeting processes. And, and the other point of that, why change is so hard to establish institutions is when you manage around um, and organize yourself around academic discipline. You are fusing together all the purposes, all right? So you're just put, lopping together undergraduate, graduate, professional, all these things are fused together. So when you wanna change something, you've got this big mass that you've gotta change. I didn't have, that was one of the benefits of starting something new. I didn't have, to separate all that stuff out. And I think leading by purpose allows you to change that conversation. And that's a really uh, valuable uh, thing to help us uh, understand why change in fact is so difficult uh, on a college or university campus. Um, and I, I, I don't think that's a perspective that we, we have um, front of mind very often. So I, I appreciate your, your highlighting that. Uh, in, in the book's epilogue, you write about purpose and innovation. And in particular, you raise some really interesting questions about what innovation is and whether it really is the driving force that is reshaping higher education that so many um, observers claim that it is. So can you, can you explain what you mean here? Sure, sure. I, there were really two reasons, I, uh, two points I was trying to make in the epilogue. One was, I noticed that the reviewers of earlier drafts of the book had uh, places equivalence between being new and innovative. And that I just, maybe that was the ghost, I don't know, but it was just, I wanted to separate those two. What makes a place innovative is the people, not just being new. 
And so I wanted to emphasize that. But the second point is the one that you just made is that I wanted to argue that innovation alone will not be the driving force that reshapes higher education. Um, now, the, the, the other lesson I learned in building UMR is that, that today a campus cannot compete with just its, I call its hows and what's. Okay. Uh, many campuses either have or soon will have, you know, online programs, gamified learning, digital badges, a stack uh, competencies or credentials. I mean, you can name it. They're, they're going to, everyone's going to. But many institutions, especially those of us that are not considered large, and remember, uh, I recall the conversation you had with the author of the book, uh, College Stress. What do they say? If, if you're large, you're gonna get larger. And if you're rich, you're gonna get richer. But the other 2000 of us who are not gonna be getting larger in that way are not gonna be certainly getting richer, um, cannot compete just with hows and whats. I, I, I think our only chance to compete is with our why. What makes us special and distinctive, our campus purpose? So my point is, is that if you lead by your why, your purpose, the why will shape your innovative structure and your imaginative practices. It is that why and your tailored what's and how's that really will set you apart in the marketplace. So you got to start all of this by answering that question, why does this campus exist today and build the innovation that's relevant and tailored to achieve that particular purpose. If you just start with your hows and whats, I just don't think that's a fruitful strategy. I, I agree with that uh, completely. Now, I, I have to ask you, it, it, it is, it's one thing to design an institution from scratch with purpose in mind, however, for most leaders who have inherited institutions where the ghost of the university past is deeply interwoven into the fabric of the culture, what, what can you do? Where do you start? Yeah, I clearly, I, I did have an advantage in starting something new. You know, there was just this freedom to think more broadly and it was just easier to assemble people who were open to new conversations and really not entrenched in higher education policy and process. Um, and it was just natural to ask the question, why does this campus exist today? Uh, and, and, and when I also, and it's other important, when I reflect back, the faculty and staff were really empowered by this openness to new ideas and really by that invitation to unleash their creativity. I, it, it, was a, it was a great collection of, of things that happened at the same time, great synergy. In my opinion, leaders need to redirect that mental energy, that collective energy that we talked about earlier, away from discussions only about budgets, policies, and organizational structures, and focus on that question, why does your campus exist today? Because the leader of, the, of those of us in these 2,000 institutions that are not getting richer and not getting bigger, um, really need to be marshalling our mental energy around campus purpose and build that campus network around that value proposition that leads by purpose. Uh, now, I know as I say that, I, I know a lot of your listeners are gonna be rolling their eyes 
And, you know, I've listened to these presentations and make it sound like it's not simple. It's really hard. And I, re I remember um, <laughs> and lived it, quite frankly, Peter Drucker's quote, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> but I believe the only way to shun the ghost, the university past, is to stop focusing on the what's in the house. That's where the ghost lives. That's where it thrives. You're playing on its home field. Your only chance to really shun that ghost is to move the conversation to the why. Why do you exist? Because you want your why to drive the what's in the hows and not the ghost. So I, if you start your planning with the why, you just you have a better chance of combating the ghost. At least that's my belief. That's really good. That's quotable. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pull that out <laughs> and and highlight it when we play the episode because I think you're right on the money. So now we've come to the end of our time. This has been such a great conversation. I have one final question. Mm -hmm. um, we have a signature question we ask all of our guests and I'm gonna put a, a little tweak on your question that relates to some of what you write in the book. And so the question is this, as you look to the future of higher education, what are your thoughts about making higher education a sustainable enterprise? Uh, essentially, what, what's it gonna take? Well, you know, I, I, I've listened to that question answered by a lot of your podcasts and there are some really good answers. Um, um, you know, one that, um, uh, that I resonated with was a recent uh, post by David Staley, who uh, argued, and I'm going to put this in my words, sure. bigger is not better, but better is better. He talked about what's the right scale. I think that's something important to remember. And then the other previous podcast, which I um, referred to earlier, was this whole discussion about blue ocean strategies. Mm. We've got to be open to think much more broadly about um, our purposes. And then my, what I would add is that the campus communities need to, need to establish their unique why, obviously lead by their why or their purpose, and then really try to compete with that distinctiveness. Don't compete with your hows and whats, compete with your why. That's, that was my strategy at the University of Minnesota Rochester. I truly believe that this is the strategic approach will be a healthier way to reshape the landscape of higher education. And then collectively with all of higher education, this will be a better way for us to, to really develop the future workforce and develop uh, the kind of democratic society that we want in this country. Um, I just think it's a much better way than for all of us to simply be competing with price and com commodity manipulations. So uh, I just, I keep emphasizing that I, that I think a sustainable institution is gonna be one that really establishes and understands and lives its reason for existence, that's why.
I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of Chellop, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash Chellop for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious U community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.